1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read. We're going to be we're studying through this letter here, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Um, I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Pick it up right where we left off last Lord's Day. So 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning, that you would feed us from your word. And I pray that as we leave here today, we would genuinely say, I would rather have Jesus than anything this world has to offer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin this morning, I want to acknowledge a couple of things. First, we need to acknowledge that the Bible is rich, and we cannot plumb the depths of it, of God's word, even in one lifetime. And what that means is that this passage is also incredibly rich and deep, and we cannot plumb the depths of it in one sermon. So we'll just be scratching the surface of these verses this morning. Second, on these verses specifically, while there is, there is one specific point that Paul is making There's actually a few different emphases or a few different things to see here in these verses. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at just one emphasis. And as you can tell, I think probably by the title of the sermon in the bulletin, um, we're going to be looking especially at the word of the cross. Now, having said that, Lord willing, next week we'll be coming back to this very same passage and look at it from another angle or, or another emphasis. But remember that the word of the cross is the key foundational doctrine of these verses. So that's what we will look at. Um, What we look at next week will actually be support for that. We're going to look at the word of the cross today and then how that is supported next week. But we'll get at that then. And so for now, let's examine this this phrase, the word of the cross. As I was preparing for this, there was a song, there's always a song in my head. Um, There was a specific hymn in my head as I was preparing this sermon this week. And it was written by Martin Luther. In fact, it's his most famous hymn. And there's that line in it that I've always wondered about. It's actually the very end of the third verse, and it seems to pick up in the first line of the fourth verse. I think you know which hymn I'm talking about. The third verse goes like this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. 
That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. What is that one little word that shall fell the prince of darkness grim? What is that one little word shall fell him, Luther writes? In some of his other writings, Luther himself said that it was the word liar. That Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. And from the very beginning, he has twisted and contorted the the truth of God into a lie. Satan's favorite lie has been to declare unclean what God has made clean. To declare guilty those whose sins have been covered. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Luther's own writing, what he had in mind when he wrote that hymn. But as I was studying this week, as I was thinking about the word of the cross, and that, that phrase from that hymn kept repeating in my mind, one little word shall fell him. I couldn't help but think that what really secured the doom of Satan is the word of the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Last week, as we looked at the previous passage, we saw that the Corinthian church was was dangerously close to a four-way split. But it wasn't over doctrine. They weren't in danger of breaking off and forming new churches because they, they disagreed over matters of, say, the Holy Spirit and, and whether he proceeds from the Father or the Father and the Son. They weren't going to split over the authority of the Bishop of Rome or, or the method and mode of baptism or the presence of the Son in the Lord's Supper. They were in danger of splitting over their favorite preachers. And, and in the case, it was these four men one of whom was Jesus himself, and they all proclaimed, all four of them, Paul, Cephas, Apollos, and Christ himself, all proclaimed the same message. They they preached the gospel, the word of the cross. They preached the cross of Christ. They all proclaimed the word of the cross. And that's how Paul corrected the Corinthians, by pointing them to the gospel. The same gospel that he and Apollos and Peter or Cephas and Jesus all proclaimed. The same gospel that they were baptized in light of. They weren't baptized into Paul's name because Paul wasn't crucified for them. In fact, Paul explains that his mission was to preach the cross of Jesus Christ, which has power. And beginning in this section here, and really continuing into chapter 2, maybe through chapter 2, Paul digs into the power of the cross. But he does so in an unexpected way, I think. He compares God's wisdom, or God's power, and worldly wisdom. And as we get into this, we need to remember that we are still, we're still in this fight today. Who are you listening to? And I don't mean who's your favorite preacher. See, the world, or worldly wisdom, continues to preach an anti-gospel message of the supremacy of self. They shout at us to trust the science, while also telling us that gender is based on feelings. 
The world continues to preach to our children to follow their hearts and do whatever you want to make you happy. But the church of Jesus Christ proclaims a different message. We preach the word of the cross. And Paul, in this passage, he, he, he tells us that there are four implications of the word of the cross. Let me give you all four now, for those of you who are taking notes. We're going to come back and look at each one of these, but as usual, we're going to spend most time on the first one. First is this. These are the implications of the word of the cross. The word of the cross destroys the wisdom of this world. The word of the cross destroys the wisdom of this world. The word of the cross saves those who believe. Saves those who believe. The word of the cross must be preached to all. It must be preached to all. And the word of the cross reveals the foolishness of human wisdom. Reveals the foolishness of human wisdom. So let's work through these. The word of the cross destroys the wisdom of this world. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, just as Paul's thesis in the last section, I mentioned this last week, his sort of theme or his thesis in that last section is found in verse 10. And then that thesis really kind of continues throughout the letter. And so in this section, the reason that we're going to spend the most time on this first point is because verse 18 is sort of his theme or his thesis for this section. And it's really an extended development of verse 17, of what he had said in the previous verse. But we're going to come back to that next week, Lord willing. Verse 18 is an extended development of verse 17. And if you have, um, to, to pull out a big phrase for you, if you have what is called a dynamic equivalent translation of the Bible, and in other words, one that's translated uh, from the Greek here, for readability, it's easy to read. Those are good translations. Um, it's a it's a thought for thought translation instead of a word for word translation. So if you have one of those, say the NIV or the New Living Translation, they use the phrase "the message of the cross." For the word of the cross or the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And, and while that is true, it's not actually what is said here. Because the word of the cross, that word is actually the Greek. I know I gave you a Greek word last week, and I told you I wasn't going to do that very often. Well, I'm doing it again. The word of the cross is logos, L-O-G-O-S, logos. It's the logos of the cross. And let me, let me remind you of the most famous place that word is used. It's John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's the same word that's translated here in verse 18. And while that Logos is translated differently in different places in the New Testament, it is clearly tied to Christ himself. In fact, a good translation of Logos is divine expression. It is the Word made flesh. It is the Word of God. Ben was talking about this briefly during Sunday school. It is the Word of God in the flesh. 
It is Jesus himself. In other words, the word of the cross is not just about any cross. Remember, the the cross was was a fairly common Roman execution method. It was known around the Roman Empire. So nearly everyone had at least heard of the brutality of the cross, if they had not witnessed it with their own eyes. And while we automatically connect it, we, in our day, automatically connect the cross, when we think of the cross, we automatically connect it to Christ and His crucifixion, that wasn't necessarily true in the early years of the church. It was so familiar because possible that many had lost people they knew to the brutality of the cross. But Paul uses the word logos to intentionally connect the message of this cross to Christ, the word of God who became flesh, the promise of God that was fulfilled all of God's promises. There's no other way to interpret this than to say that the word of the cross is the doctrine of salvation through the Son of God as a sacrifice for the sins of men. And verse 18 tells us really that there are only two possible responses to the word, to the preaching, to the message, to the doctrine of the cross. It's either perishing or salvation. That's what verse 18 tells us. See, in God's view, there's only two types of people in the world. Those who are perishing or those who have been saved from perishing. Now, there are a lot of different words that we could use there in the place of perishing. We could say believers and unbelievers. We could say that there are those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and there are those who have been made alive or born again. But the point is the same. There are those whom God has given the right to be called children of God, and there are those of whom God says, not my people. And to that group, to the perishing, to the unregenerate, to unbelievers, the word of the cross is foolish. Why? Why is it foolish? Because to them... The message of the cross, the good news that Jesus Christ made an atonement for sins by dying on the cross and rising again, that he paid the penalty for sin. To them, that message is simply absurd. And the reason is because, as, as Paul will say in Romans 1.21, their foolish hearts are darkened. But to this other group of people, those who are being saved, as Paul puts it, The divine expression, this divine message, the word of the cross, this message of a crucified Redeemer is itself the power of God. It is life-giving. It is resurrecting. And not only that, but it's effective. It's effective for reconciliation. It's effective for peace. It's effective for holiness and sanctification. It gives us a whole new life. The Old Testament, God promised to remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. This is the new life. This verse contains the reason that Christ sent the apostle to preach and why he preached the word of the cross and not merely human wisdom. Listen, with all due respect to various apologetic teachers out there, those who um, teach a variety of things, whether it is young earth creationism, and I am a young earth creationist, whether it is finding God in the cosmos or whatever it is, if you ain't got the cross, you ain't got nothing. Remember that. 
Because the word of the cross alone is effectual for salvation. It is the power of God. Remember Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul longed to get to the capital of the Roman Empire so that he could meet and minister to and, and be ministered by the Roman church. And he says this, this is why he wanted to get there. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the cross is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice here in verse 18 um, that this salvation, it's actually in the present tense. Do you see that? Are being saved. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our salvation is current. It's active. It's all-encompassing. It's past, present, and future. It's a it's an uh, have been saved, have been justified, have been uh, um, declared righteous. It's our being saved, our being conformed to the image of Christ, and will be saved when we see Him in glory, when all the junk in this world is is done. We will be saved. God is actively in the process of saving us, of sanctifying us, and of conforming us to the image of Christ. And one other kind of side note here. The word of the cross is more than just simply preaching a message about how to be saved. It's not less than that, don't get me wrong, but it is more than that. Because the cross itself, the cross itself is the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God. When Christ went to the cross, he bore the wrath of God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The judgment of God is seen in the cross when, when Christ died. And when he died, it was because of our sin. He was the righteous for the unrighteous. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. Well, not only is the word of the cross um, salvation for all who call upon the name of Christ, it's also judgment on those who do not. God is on his way to judge. God is on his way to vindicate his name and to be revealed in power and glory. And then one other point, and I, I warned you, but I know I'm spending a lot of time on verse 18. Um, this is important. We would expect Paul to compare the wisdom of this world with the wisdom of God here. Like we see, for example, throughout the book of Proverbs. and He's going to mention, actually, the wisdom of God down in verse 24. But he's really comparing worldly wisdom with the power of God. Do you see that? He's actually comparing worldly wisdom with the power of God. The world compares folly. The world compares foolishness with wisdom. But when the logos of the cross, the logos of the cross, the word of the cross enters the picture, all of a sudden we have a different comparison now. We have a different comparison when Christ comes into the picture. The wisdom of this world is nothing. The wisdom of this world is dead. But the word of the cross is the power of God. It's everything. 
The word of the cross gives life eternally. That's what Paul is getting at when he appeals to Scripture in verse 19. Listen to this again. This is a quote. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. It's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 29. And I want you to know the context of why God says this. So turn over there with me. If you can find the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 29, I'm going to read verses 13 to 24. Isaiah 29, beginning in verse 13, says this. Again, this is speaking to the Israelite people. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the counsel uh, from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, uh, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, and a thing made should be should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing say of uh, say the thing formed say of him who formed it he has no understanding. It is not yet a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease. But all who watch to do evil, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves at the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is on in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel, and those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Worldly wisdom is what he's addressing here. Worldly wisdom is a rejection of God, and he has promised to wipe the wisdom of this world away. But he has also said, even in that passage, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That's what verse 20 means here in 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 20 again. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The wisdom of this world has been made foolish by God. Why? Because the word of the cross is salvation to those who believe 
The word of the cross saves those who believe. Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. According to God's glorious plan of redemption, in his wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world cannot study to find God. The world cannot research creation to know God. The world cannot watch the History Channel to be reconciled to God. Granted, as he says in Romans chapter 1, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse, so that the world is without excuse. But it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching the message of the cross, the word of the cross, to save those who believe. The way of salvation is above human wisdom. We can get ourselves into space. We have a significant amount of wisdom, right? Scientific research. We've come a long way, like, since the First World War. It's like 60-something years between the Wright brothers and when man stepped foot on the moon. That's incredible. Man can do a lot of things. We can eradicate disease and hunger. We can do all sorts of things, but God has put limits on human wisdom. We've made great medical advances, and yet still people get old and die pretty much the same age as always. And neither human wisdom, which is a gift of God, nor worldly wisdom, which is a rejection of God for the things of this world, hear that distinction, neither of them will ever be able to save us. Instead, God established the foolishness of preaching as the means of salvation. Romans chapter 10 puts it even more kind of straightforwardly. It says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing through the word of the cross. The message of salvation. Now, Lord willing, we're going to pick up this thread right here next week. But for today, know this. It is the word of the cross. It is the proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that saves those who repent of their sin and trust in him for salvation. It is the word of the cross who saves, that saves those who believe. And furthermore, the word of the cross must be preached to all. Look at verse 22, 22 to 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The word of the cross must be preached to all. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are really just two groups of people in the world, right? Believers and unbelievers. 
And while that's true, there's also, um, from a biblical worldview, especially in the New Testament, there's also two main religious divisions as well, Jew and Gentile, or, or Greek, same word. Jew and non-Jew is what this means. And I think that you can understand that I'm not contradicting myself on that point, but that Jew and Greek are sort of like subdivisions, and in the kingdom of God, they're, they're unimportant because, because in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. Um, Paul, Christ will do away with those divisions, and Paul will write about that exclusively in the book of Ephesians that unity. But for this time period, as Paul is writing to the very Greek church as a Jewish apostle, unbelieving Jews and Greeks had virtually nothing in common except for this one thing. When they were confronted by the truth of Jesus Christ, they relied on worldly wisdom to reason through it. When they were confronted by the gospel, the Jews demanded signs, things that they could see. Listen to Mark chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You know that the Greeks who gave us Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They were all about philosophical wisdom. But do you know what the point of verse 22 is? Verse 22 again. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Do you know what the point of that is? Both of them are rejecting Christ. Mark 8, 11, that passage I just read where the Pharisees come to Jesus and demand a sign. That comes right after Jesus has miraculously fed 4,000 people at one time. Jesus did all kinds of signs, sometimes in their presence. How many times did the Pharisees go after Jesus for performing a sign, say, healing someone on the Sabbath? And they would go after him because they believed he was breaking their law, which was really just their tradition. But the Greeks were no better. When Paul preached the gospel to them in Athens, for example, in Acts chapter 17, this was their response. This is verse 32 of Acts 17. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. Yet regardless of the mockery, regardless of their response, Paul will continue in his steadfast preaching, as verse 23 tells us. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. The word of the cross must be preached to all, no matter the response. Because as Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 to 15 says this, But the Lord of hosts... Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And then in Isaiah 28, verse 16, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. 
Christ is that cornerstone. Because to those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the cross is the power of God for salvation, and it must be preached to all. Is this not the Great Commission? Go therefore into all the world and preach, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then finally, the word of the cross reveals the foolishness of human wisdom. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The foolishness of the word of the cross is what opens our eyes. As we respond to a message of a crucified Jewish Messiah, preached by an unimpressive Jewish apostle, creating an assembly of saved sinners, united in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The word of the cross is foolishness to the world. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God for salvation. Not only did Christ save us He had promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church that he is building is the assembly of the saints. He is assembling us. He's bringing us together. Assembling us, uniting us in one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We're going to sing a hymn. And then we're going to move to the baptism part of our worship this morning. And you're going to hear three brief testimonies of God's grace upon the lives of those who are publicly identifying not only with Jesus Christ, but also with this church. Baptism, by definition, is an outward sign, a seal, a symbol of a believer's salvation, of being immersed into Christ and therefore into his church, being a part of his people. Baptism, rightly administered, is the church, along with the believer, proclaiming that they have been redeemed by Christ and brought into a covenant relationship, a common union with him. Baptism is a Christian proclaiming, I am a new creation. I have been born again. And it is the church testifying, it is you, us, testifying to that fact, saying, yes, we can see that you have been washed free of the penalty of your sin and that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So pray with me, and then we will rejoice in the resurrection of new life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these things, the foolishness of the word of the cross that it is Christ's cross, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh who went to the cross and saves us from our sin, that we might live eternally with you forever. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that you would give us ears to hear, that your Spirit would continue to work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.